Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for being with us today. This is episode number 74 of The Next Track. I think most of our listeners know that I'm an audio guy, and uh, I love hearing about how stuff is produced and recorded and the stories about the people who sit behind the boards in their studios making things sound great for us, the music consumers. And today, we are delighted to have as a guest mixing and mastering engineer Jeffrey Norman. Jeffrey, it's great to meet you, and it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, great to be here. Thank you. Regular listeners of this show know about my deadhead credentials, and if you've managed to keep listening to 73 episodes so far, we've already discussed The Grateful Dead about a half a dozen times. We've discussed history and performance and all that, but this time I wanted to get Jeffrey Norman on, because if you ever read the credits on these Grateful Dead releases, he's the guy who's always listed as the mixing and mastering engineer. And of all the bands in the world that have released archival recordings, The Dead has probably released the most. Some of these from tapes that have been in vaults for 30 or 40 years and may not be in great condition, yet they almost all sound so great. And we wanted to get an idea how you do this. Even those listeners who don't care about The Grateful Dead, I think the process that Jeffrey's going to explain about restoring and remastering and all that could interest you, particularly, you know, historical classical recordings go through a similar process. So, Jeffrey, you've been a mastering engineer for a long time. How did you get involved with The Grateful Dead? Um, I had, uh, I was working on staff at a uh, the record plant in Sausalito, and they gave a call, and this was like in 1980, little 80-plus, um, for someone who could do some editing. And at that time, it was all razor blade tape editing. And um, I always enjoyed it, and, and uh, so I said, sure, I'd like to. And, and, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really a deadhead at the time, but I appreciated The Grateful Dead. I wasn't, wasn't fanatic like some people were, but I came into a scene that was – quite different than the scene of a, of a normal studio and uh, just a, more of a boys clubhouse, a huge studio that was just one big room um, with great equipment, but a huge room and that was just have theater curtains all around it. And that was the studio recording space. It was just a studio and a control room all in one place. But in any case, they, uh, they needed someone to, to help edit at the time. It was a radio city music hall, uh, uh, release and uh, because they needed to get it on vinyl, they're going to have, I believe it was two LPs, and that and the and normal Grateful Dead shows were much longer than two LPs, and so they that's when they called me in, and I just started doing editing, and it all worked. I could get along with them, and that was part of, I think that's part of why I was able to stick around, just because uh, I, I have a even enough personality, I can get along with diverse personalities and there are certainly diverse personalities in the band and in the band and in the crew you had to kind of go through the uh pass the crew test if you had to take take some crap you had to be able to kind of roll with it if you wanted to be in that organization and so I, yeah it worked fine yeah i i saw two of those radio city shows they were some of the most interesting shows that the dead did that i ever saw because they had an acoustic set followed by an electric set how difficult does that make the mixing and the mastering and the editing process well you know it i was i came in only as an assistant so i wasn't doing the mixing in, in, at the time and and but it was very cleverly done this was by uh betty and by uh, dan healy and uh 
they recorded the performance um, on multi-track. And in addition to the band laid out as it was, they did this both acoustically and electrically, but they recorded the audience on a separate machine, on a four-track machine, and that was had time code on it. And so the the multi-track had time code and the audience had time code and they recorded the audience in a uh, a technique ms technique i'm not sure if your um listeners are familiar with that but it's a way of of setting up a microphone cluster to give up if you want you can kind of vary it after the fact to create a very wide stereo image if you want to do that and so by having the audience on this cluster on a separate machine, they were able to move it in time by changing the time code um, offset to be right up on stage. And I and so the the performances of the recordings are very present, and then the ambience, which is the sound of the hall and the audience, was right up with them instead of having those audience mics back where they physically were. They were kind of on stage, and so that created really to me a great a great sound and so it's not answering your question at all <laughs> but that's fine that's that's really interesting information because when you listen to the acoustic album reckoning you do hear that audience and it makes it feel like it was recorded in a small club whereas radio city if i'm not mistaken has about four thousand seats it's it's one of the larger theaters in new york city that's not an arena but you do get that intimate feeling and, and when you look at the video that was shot for the acoustic set they were all sitting as close together as they would be in a living room. And the audio on Reckoning really gives that kind of atmosphere. And, and again, it, it is a huge hall, you know, very, very tall. Right. Well, that they, I wasn't again involved in the recording. I know that was a scene. I, they took the actual console to Radio City Music Hall, had to knock out a wall. They had to, to knock out a wall and there was a lawsuit or something about that. Yeah. Crazy Grateful Dead stuff. But but even I thought I was very impressed just with the, the after effect. And I just came in as the editor, not as a mixer at the time. So when did you graduate to mixing and, and eventually to mastering? Yeah. Um, let me see. Well, uh after I was I was doing um, mastering before Jerry died, and then after Jerry died, um, I was at the time I was working pretty closely with John Cutler, who is a Grateful Dead and and Jerry Garcia uh, engineer, and then he uh, he left the organization, and then I kind of just sort of de facto. This was probably mm, boy. Let me see, 1995, around 2000, maybe, um, that I actually kind of took over as the as the mixing and, and mastering mastering guy. Um, I had previously studied under Joe Gastwert down in L.A. because he did some of the a lot of earlier uh, Grateful Dead um, uh, mastering and uh, lived down in L.A. for a little while and realized it just my kids were little. I just it was just not what I wanted to do. And so uh, I was able to move it up here and then work at a Grateful Dead studio for the longest time. And then uh, when the, the production company closed, Grateful Dead production company closed, um, have my own business and then still do, got, get to still do it. So the Grateful Dead have released a lot of live recordings. In addition to the ones that were what we would call albums like Europe 72, they started releasing live recordings with the what they were calling the Vault series, one from the Vault, two from the Vault, three from the Vault. And then they came up with Dick's Picks, named after Dick Latvala, and now we're up to Dave's Picks. Have you been involved in all of those releases? Uh, pretty much 
all of them except maybe one or two when I was involved in some other project. So uh, almost, yeah, it's it's been terrific. You know, it, it's, I've learned a lot doing all this. And it's an extraordinary catalog of work. Again, there are some people listening to the show who don't really care for the Grateful Dead, but you have to appreciate that a band that was able to create such a variety of music from, you know, the mid-60s, the, the heavy R&B sound, to the jazzy sound of the 70s, to the, 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 the MIDI-influenced sound of the 80s and all that, you know, they span decades with, with such a wide variety of music, which is well represented on the various releases. I have here Dave's Picks number 23, uh, January 22, 1978, which I just got last week, and I haven't listened to yet, but every time there's a new Dave's Pick that comes out four times a year, it's just a revelation. And one of the most amazing things is the quality of the sound on these recordings. How do you get this stuff to sound this good? Well, thank you. But, you know, something that, uh, that Cutler turned me on to that I hadn't really thought about, and that was um, when they when they performed and they were recording, say in this case it was a Betty uh <laughs> board that's that's uh, i mean a betty tape that's a tape recorded by betty Cantor jackson who managed sound for the band and who made these extraordinary recordings that's yeah. right she had a, a really electronically simple mixer like an ampex mixer very clean and um uh signed left left center right for microphones and so that the microphones were went through this quite quite simple minimal electronic mixer to a two-track machine straight there no processing generally no processing sometimes that's an issue on my end when there's has been no yeah. compression and no level control but yeah. in any case it made a very clean recording and so it lived on the tape from the tape recording and then i received that very same tape and play it back through my my ampex atr tape recorder that's restored, you know, an immaculate tape recorder. And so the process is band, mixer, tape, back, back out of tape machine. Minimal, you know, minimal um, processing. And I mean, I do some, some uh, EQ and compression, but as opposed to a multi-track that goes through a big console into a big multi-track tape machine, out of that tape machine, back into another elaborate console with a lot of electronics, lots of processing if necessary, whether, whether to create a, a two-track stereo that lives on another tape machine. I guess what I'm getting at is minimal signal path that she did and that the other recordists, whether it's Bear or some of the crew members, um, I think creates a really clean sound. And um, the mixes sometimes may not be um, perfect, perfect yeah. but, but the sound quality is really great. I'm wondering how the age of the tapes affects what you do. I've had to work with old reel-to-reel -reel stuff, um, stuff of my own that I recorded in the 80s and the 90s. And it's very soupy. I mean, the tape literally starts to fall apart. How have the original tapes you work with been stored all this time? And has any restoration been necessary? Um, most of the older tapes... It's amazing. I'm doing a lot of archival work, which I think you may know about because of the uh, Doc and Merle Watson release. That was from yes. an archival um, you know, vault. And But generally, the tapes that are Grateful Dead tapes are in really pretty good shape. They, they live down in the Warner Brothers vault, which is climate controlled. Um, and the issues that come up will be um, 
perhaps uh, the, the biggest issue may be um, tape separation backing that needs – the tapes need to be baked. And that's of a specific era, maybe 1976 to 82, generally just Ampex, a specific brand of tape that had a problem of, of, of the tape actually sticking to the tape recorder. When you play back now, and and you you're probably familiar with that as well, and that can be cured with baking, <laughs> um, and uh, where you actually put it in a in a convection oven for uh, 24 hours at a specific temperature, and and then the tape will play fine for about a month, and it has to be transferred. Um, so there is that one issue, but back to the the bulk of them, they're they're really. Um, I think because they've been kept in in pretty uh, pristine, you know, low low humidity, low temperature locations, the tapes have been really pretty good. Well, with the exception of like the recent Betty boards that were recovered, weren't a lot of these tapes put into this vault twenty years ago already? Yes. Well, yes, they they are. So so they've been in good conditions for at least twenty years. Yeah. Whereas some of these other tapes that are just coming out, the recent Betty boards, these have been in a storage locker. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I, I don't. I won't say I don't think anything do anything special, but um, I, I'm very careful with what I do. I use um, really high end equalization, great equalization. Um, and, and minimal compression, um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I I don't know what to say. I'm I'm, I'm glad, pleased that you're happy with the results, but I think all the, I think all deadheads are happy with the results. Uh, we really are. That's all I care about. You know, for for people like me who who were trading tapes and then and then CDs, you know, you get a fourth or a fifth generation tape. It sounds like a fourth or fifth generation tape where someone put on the Dolby noise reduction or didn't put it on. The difference here, it's like the May 877, when I heard that, it was a revelation because I was used to these soundboards that had been around for decades. And all of a sudden, it sounded like it was there. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this in episode 67 with Peter Connors, who wrote the book about the May 877 concert. And he was saying how bad the hall was in terms of sound. And then we get this recording that just sounds like they're in a studio someplace. I got a, I've got to read his book. That sounds great. You haven't read it? No, no. I've been too busy working on this Grateful Dead oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, You know, there's one thing, because you brought up that release that is – I'm able to do this is the the May 77 tapes and you are right these were in not a pristine storage condition they were they were actually pretty funky um something that I can do if I can convince uh, those with the budgets on these bigger processes I mean bigger uh releases is to uh use something called plangent processes and Plangent, uh, just really very quickly, but when a tape is recorded, it, in, in addition to the audio, there is a very high frequency tone that is necessary to, re to, to record on an analog tape to ensure good frequency response. And that's called bias. And that's an, a bias. Um, every tape manufacturer has its own particular signature and they're usually all these tones this tone particularly is going to be well above audio 
well above hearing, like 100,000 hertz. And we, you know, where we hear maybe 15,000 or, or below. At our age, below. <laughs> and I'm going to say below, even for me. Yeah. And, uh, but the tone is, is on the tape. It's embedded in, at that point, sort of the noise of the tape. And plans your processes. Oh, and, the, and the significance of that is that every time you play a tape machine on an analog machine, regardless of the quality of the machine, the best machines in the world, always, there's a little, it's a motor. So it's not precise. It's not like digital. It plays back exactly, exactly the same every time. So the the playback of a tape machine kind of, it's called wow and flutter, and it it fluctuates very minutely. Now, we're, our ears, not enough generally to hear it so much, but we're used to that. And what Plangent does is look at that tone that's in there, and it sees it, and with digital processing, make sure that the tone plays back exactly at 100,000 hertz, not 99,999, you know, not 100,001, back and forth very minutely. It plays it very precisely. And what that does is correspondingly uh, directs the music, which has to follow now, to be very, very clean. The low end gets really solid, and, it, and the end result is as time is, is perfect, but the character of the tape machine is still is still there. The character of the hall or what is still there, and so it, it's not a real uh, it's not real inexpensive. So it's only on some of the bigger projects can I convince um, Rhino to do that. But they I think they see the benefits because they see uh, fans that really appreciate that. Yeah. So what that does is it stabilizes because if you don't do that, you have the music is going ooh and what that does is stabilizes it and makes the music solid is that it that's exactly it and of course that ooh so pronounced you know what i mean where you listen to it enormous. without it you go sounds great but with yeah. it it's it's a, it's another factor that really uh, makes them a, a great uh, playback it's true that on these bigger releases the sound quality does sort of shimmer it it really does I'll go back a few years to this wonderful, I remember when we first heard about the Europe 72 box set and everyone on the internet was thinking, well, it's like an April Fool's joke because we never thought it would happen. And people had been talking about this in Usenet groups for like a decade saying, you know, if they're going to release something big, they need to release Europe 72. And they did this big ass box set in a steamer trunk with 73 CDs. You mixed and mastered every single cd of that didn't you i mixed it i didn't master it it's hard for me to talk about that i'm i was really unhappy with it to be honest oh no yeah because i think there's some things that i just didn't do correctly i was really rushed because there was uh it just by the by the time and monetary constraints i was in the studio for a certain amount of time so i had to mix five songs a day i usually if i'm I prefer to mix a multi-track song a day, maybe two, you know, but it was just such a rush and, uh, you know, it would, could have been a lot better. I'd love to, I would, if it weren't a money thing, I would go back and redo it. But, um, uh, the music holds up, the music holds up my end. I, I'm, yeah, I, I would, uh, <laughs> I was not happy with it. Yeah. I just, do, you, not, do you want us to cut that out of the podcast? I, I don't care. I'm I'm more than willing to uh, to admit that I'm not okay. happy with it. You know, that's fine. Um, that's it's it's the music holds up. The music, the music is 
is great. And that part was really fun. But it was after I got done, hindsight, listened to some things that said, oh, man, I just, you know, not enough piano. And well, what artistically minded person doesn't look back on their work and think, gosh, if I only had five more minutes, I could have tweaked that a little bit better. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it. You can always go back and and look at it and say it could have been done better. I, I fret about this stuff a lot. Um, there's there's some things I really like that I think I did a really good job on. <laughs> there's other, yeah, I'm pretty critical. I'm pretty critical, you know, and that people say, well, how can you keep working with the Grateful Dead, man? That's, you know, that's, and I do other things, but I'm a, I do a lot of Grateful Dead and, and it's, I find each one a challenge. How much more work is there on a multi-track recording like that? Um, you mean, how much is there to do? Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. Well, you know, in, in the, as a, as mastering, you're making decisions, your, your mix is set, your stereo mix is set. You're making decisions on, um, are the tones correct? Do I need a little more bass? Do I need to thin out the bass? Is there enough top end? Um, is there too much vocal or not enough vocal? You know, are the levels right? But with mix, you're, you know, you're really starting from scratch. Like, how's this bass drum sound? It's kind of thuddy. I gotta, I gotta make some changes on the sound of each individual instrument if they're not right. Make the decisions on where they live in the stereo spectrum. You know, does this does this warrant having a bigger space, more reverb or ambience or whatever you want to call it? Should there be delays on things to give a little bit, um, to, to make it sound like what you thought you remember it sounded like live? All those kinds of things. So a mix is is much more um, time-consuming, I think, uh, per song than a mastering, although mastering i've learned i always thought it was a piece of cake what you're just some tones you know you make a change in the level of a piece of piece of cake then I, the more i've done it, the more i realize man this is hard <laughs> hard to make this really right when you're doing when you're mixing an entire concert from from multi-track is it really important to get let's say the first song perfect because you use that as a template for the rest of the performance or are you approaching each song separately or with the dead let's say each a bit of music from applause to applause because sometimes you have three songs that segue into each other. Um, well, I find that uh, a lot of the, depending on who recorded it is is um, important because if it if it's consistent from beginning to end, then it makes it a little bit easier. But sometimes I will start mixing maybe the second, third, fourth song in because I know by that time that everything's more consistent, you know, yeah. and the same thing with mastering, particularly when they're when they're scrambling to get the, the mix right for these for the two track stuff that's already mixed. I know that I may as well start with my template a little further into the into the set. It makes it less Otherwise, I, I keep uh, anyway. It's a little easier for me to do it that way, right? And I'll, because every at every concert, the person at the soundboard is adjusting the sound in the first couple songs for the audience because they've done the sound check in an empty hall, and so obviously that makes a difference. Well, and and they're also not thinking about posterity; they just want to no. get the mix right for that show. No one's thinking, well, we got to get this perfect because in twenty years we'll be making every single house recording we ever made available in a box set. It's you know they want to get it done for that show and then move on. You know, to me, I mean, that's huge, and it's that is one of the reasons why um, this has lasted so long. It's sort of a Grateful Dead's approach. They would play three nights at Boston Hall or whatever, and they for just to prevent their own boredom, they wouldn't do the same set 
three times a row. They'd all be different shows. And of course, the bands, the fans began to realize that's the deal and would then want to go to all three shows and want to tape all three shows. And and it sort of built this 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 base of tape trading. That's probably sounds like how you started. Right. Yeah. And uh, um, but they they did it, I think, just so they number one, they they recorded to be able to listen back to the performances to make sure that, uh, hey, we're, we're doing pretty well or no, we need to work on this. But I, you're right. They never thought these tapes would have been released. At least in the early days. Now everyone tapes thinking that they'll eventually release things. But back then they didn't. No, that's right. So you, you also worked on the Long Strange Trip soundtrack, didn't you? Yes, that's right. So the Long Strange Trip is this six-hour documentary that's on Amazon. What was that like? Because you were working with a wide variety of music from different periods. Was it harder to get a stable sound signature across the whole soundtrack? Yeah, it is more of a challenge for sure. Um, you know, I started off, um, what I used as a basis were the studio masterings, you know, and like Death Don't Have No Mercy as the first song. That sounds great. <laughs> I don't know if you... I, we yeah. saw the movie. My wife and I went to see the documentary in the theater, and it comes on with that. It just sounds great. And uh, that was mastered. I know it was originally mastered by Joe Gastward, and then more lately by a colleague, uh, Dave Glasser. And so a number of those studio recordings, Ripple or, you know, the, I'd have to have the list in front of me, um, uh, came to me um, mastered. And I didn't want to remaster something that already sounded great. So I used those as kind of the basis um, for, for, the, for the things that weren't mastered. And I, don't, I mean basses as in sort of how the balance of, of bass, treble, those kinds of things were. It is, um, yeah, it is, uh, to, to answer your question, it is really a challenge because some of those recordings were, uh, weren't certainly weren't studio recordings weren't quite as good uh the the dark star was very bass shy um so uh, but i kind of would go back to what i knew i wanted it to sound like and get something i hoped was was close so that you know when you play it from beginning to end uh, you you didn't all of a sudden need to reach your tone control or your volume control and also you just felt like it was the same band but yeah it's always harder to do those those pieces that were done very separately to keep to make it flow yeah because you were mastering for both the documentary soundtrack as well as for the cd and digital release afterwards where people will be listening to the music continuously without the the bits of people talking so do when you do that are you doing the mastering exactly the same for the two uses or is there a difference well um I, I mastered for the CD and for the LP for the soundtrack then again, but I didn't master for the movie. Ah, okay. So the mastering for the movie was different then. Well, um, yeah, I, let's, they would request certain things and I, so I would send them mastered, uh, pieces of music and then they did whatever manipulating they needed to do in the movie. And of course do all the sound design and everything right. they need to do. And okay. uh, I'm sure, and, and they were, very, uh, they, they were great to work with. And, and, uh, I, I, they would ask me if they, if they, uh, if they were going to do any changes, they always asked me and, and stuff, which was very considerate. Most, Good. you know, times they just, you know, change it. 
So, uh, but but really, no. The difference the the LP soundtrack and the CD release there that was done that here, but they did they did the movie. So we've been talking about the Grateful Dead for half an hour, but you mentioned earlier Doc and Merle Watson. At the end of each episode, we do a segment that we call our next tracks. It's the music we've been listening to in the week. And it was my selection a few episodes ago. I stumbled on that in a music magazine, and that just sounds extraordinary. What else have you been doing that we should know about that's not Grateful Dead? Well, that that was very fortunate to get to do that. That I'm I uh, Owsley Stanley and those uh, long recordist uh, legendary LSD maker and and other other infamous things um, recorded for the Grateful Dead back in the 70s and um, also recorded any number of bands whether it was at the Fillmore or or um, local venues in the Bay Area and so he provide he did the recording and then save those tapes. And so those tapes are in, uh, in a vault up in Santa Rosa, California. Um, and the, there's a foundation set up by his son to try to archive these tapes that are getting older. And so uh, I'd worked on some things by bear and, uh, when he was alive and he liked what I did. And to be honest, what I did was not very much. And I think that's what he liked because he had some early, uh, he had some early ideas. He would put the music on one channel and the vocals on another channel. And some people wanted that to be kind of folded together and which I understand, but I respected that that's not what he intended. So I, anyway, because of those things, he wanted me and another engineer to do his, his work for him. And, um, and so the, the foundation, uh, who was set up to archive these tapes called me and um and so i as, as funds are available i do archiving and it's sort of based on how old the tapes are or how fragile they are and also um in an attempt to make money to to archive these the foundation set up like patrons so if you paid a certain money you could pick a tape to 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 archive and you can't get the tape because you they can't release that, but at least you have the, you can say I've helped restore the tape. And in any, in any case, the doc and Merle Watson stuff came up and it's, it's of, um, we knew we wanted to do it just because it was, uh, a long run. It was like four days. So the, the recordists, Owsley was able to set everything up and, um, it was done at a little higher recording speed so that the, the quality is even better. And um, so that was one of the projects we did. So I recorded that just as an archive. And as an archive, what that means is trying to make an exact copy without any kind of processing um, so that it's a duplicate, now a digital duplicate of the original analog. And so I played it and, you know, I'm listening to it and taking notes and going, man, this stuff sounds great. And, uh, then I pass these on to the foundation members and to the executive sec- secretary who is, who is, he may be an attorney, but he's truly got a great musical ear. He's, he's, he's got a, he's a real talent. And uh, so that, that's when the decision was made to try to use this, put this together as a box set, as a fundraiser, and then make it, put it out to the world. Um, so it was just bare that's Owsley, did a, a great job recording. I think he does his best work with the more acoustic material. And uh, we use plangent processing also on these tapes. And um, again, I just, I, I have some 
some great some great equalizers and and a really good compressor and things that I tried to use only minimally, you know, um, and the end result I think was was really pretty good. Yeah, it sounds really alive, really present. There's an immediacy to the the sound of that, and and a lot of it is because Owsley was such a good recordist. You know, microphone positioning was probably where he really excelled, right? Yes, that's that's right, exactly. And so you hear the musicians like they're really there; that they don't sound like they're in isolated booths. I mean, these were live performances, obviously, but you hear them. You hear the separation. You hear the 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 ambience between them, and yeah, it's really something special. Yeah, I uh, it's it's uh, have it entered in as one of the entries for best historical release for Grammys. So who knows? You know, I think uh, I don't know that anybody can enter something. You know, you can. So I'm not sure how far that goes. Oh, I should make something. Doug, you, why don't you enter something? Yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you so much for spending this time. This has been really enlightening. It's really interesting to hear how much the music means to you and how you're able to transmit that to us who listen to the music afterwards. Oh, well, that's, that's great. Yeah. I'm ba- it's, I was thinking uh, some of it's just based on fear. I would be, I'd be, I always worry that I'm something's going to come out. That's not either not right or that's just not presented well. So, you know, that it, it, it's uh, very important to me for this, for the music to sound as good as it can. And hopefully um, it does at that end. And, uh, you know, you, you contacted me to talk with that. I was thinking, man, I don't, I don't know if I have anything to talk about, but um, your questions said, yes, I guess I do. So thank you. There'll be a link in the show notes to Jeffrey's company, Mockingbird Mastering. And I'll, I'll put links to a couple of Grateful Dead recordings you've been involved in that I think have really good sound. Thanks again, Jeffrey. Okay. Thanks, Kirk. Thanks, Doug. And now before we sign off, we're going to present our next tracks. Kirk, what have you got queued up? For my next track pick this week, I thought I would go back to one of my favorite Grateful Dead live recordings. And, you know, to be honest, I don't pick Grateful Dead as my next track very often, definitely not proportionally to the amount that I listen to them. This is Dick's Picks Volume 8. It was May 2nd, 1970, and it was released in June 1997. And Jeffrey Norman is credited with the mastering. This is one of my favorite Dick's picks because it has an acoustic set and an electric set. Now, this is the period uh, in 1970 when The Grateful Dead had released Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, and one of them had been out and the other was about to come out. So they were doing all these great acoustic songs. And just as I was mentioning those Radio City shows in 1980, they, they had acoustic and electric sets. These are the only times they've really done this, 70 and 80. And in this one... The Grateful Dead came on after the New Riders of the Purple Sage, and they did 11 acoustic songs. They started with Don't Ease Me In, and they did their acoustic version of I Know You Rider, which is very different from the electric version, and I just love that song. Friend of the Devil, Dire Wolf, and Black Peter, Candyman, Cumberland Blues. And they closed with Cold Jordan, which is an old spiritual with David Nelson and Marmaduke who come on the stage. And you get just this wonderful feeling of this little Grateful Dead show in that first set where it's just acoustic living room and you know they're just playing these songs because they're having fun doing them the electric part is really great too with Pigpen wailing on it's a man's world and then they go into dancing in the streets and they close with morning dew and viola blues so the the last hour of the show is just epic but the the 
wonderful acoustic set and then the contrast between the acoustic and electric is extraordinary so this is dick's picks volume 8 may 2 1970 doug what about you i've been meaning to mention this album for a while but something always seems more appropriate uh, i discovered a lot of blues artists from a series of anniversary samplers put out by alligator records and that's how i discovered hound dog taylor and the house rockers which is not only hound dog taylor's first lp it was also the first album on alligator Hound Dog Taylor sings and plays Electric Slide, and the House Rockers are Brewer Phillips on guitar and Ted Harvey on drums. These guys don't need a bass player. They don't need any extra instruments at all. They can make plenty of noise all by themselves, and boy, do they. This is truly a rockin' roadhouse Chicago-style blues album. Now, I don't know the circumstances under which this album was made, but it sounds like they came into the studio, set their gear up, and before anyone was really ready, they just recorded a dozen songs and then went on to their next gig. The music is that fresh and raw and fun. Now, this album came out in 1971 and sold about 10,000 copies, which for a blues album on a new label was pretty good. And then after Alligator put out the 20th anniversary sampler, which featured Hound Dog's Give Me Back My Wig, one of my favorite songs from the first album, uh, they sold a heck of a lot more. And this album is now considered by most blues aficionados as a classic. If you like gritty rock and blues, and I know I do, I can pretty much guarantee you'll love this album. Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.